excited to share with you from the Word of God today. We are in Luke chapter 20, and I'm going to uh, stretch today in light of the fact that last week I, I had a hard time getting through four verses. What I decided to do is do 18 today, uh, so I hope you're ready. Uh, no, that does not mean I'm going to kill you uh, with a long sermon, but hopefully you ate breakfast. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. Uh, We are born with a propensity to reject authorities in our life. Our desire to reject authority is often revealed best when we are corrected. When we are disciplined, we are especially prone to rejecting and disrespecting the authorities above us. When we're told no to something we really want, that makes our sinning hearts rebel even more. We are usually fine with authority when the authority is giving us what we want. We are good as long as the authority is providing for us. But when the authority says, stop, don't do that, you can't have that, that's when our rebellion appears. We reject authority. In fact, we often try to undermine the authority to justify our disobedience and disrespect. We can't question the person's authority over us to justify our own rebellious thoughts. We say in our hearts, or maybe out loud, who made you my judge? Who died and made you my king? Right? Sometimes we're more subtle in the way we say it. We say to ourselves, who are you to judge and correct me when you sin too? Ever said that before? That little phrase, when you sin too is our way of undermining the person in authority above us that's telling us don't do it. That is a way of saying, I'm actually no different than you. Be quiet. You don't have authority over me. The heart of man will submit to people, but there are two main motivations to submitting to people outside of Christ, that is. First, If we know the person in power will give us something that we really want, then submitting to them is okay. We'll submit to that authority. Second, people often submit to authorities over them when they fear the authority will punish them. But when it comes to submitting to authorities with pure motives, it is absolutely impossible to do it without a regenerate heart, without a born-again nature. Because we're born desiring to be our own king. We submit to authorities before Christ for the purpose of our own exaltation. To make us look good or to be liked or whatever. But once we're born again, we have a new sense. Today we're going to see that Jesus is confronted by people who did not want him to be king over them. Jesus is confronted by the religious elites who did not want God reigning over them. We are then going to see Jesus' response to these people's rejection of his authority. And we're going to see that Jesus gave a parable to explain God's plan to redeem a people for himself and yet also judge those who reject him as their Messiah and King. The focus of this passage is how we should respond to Jesus determines whether we will be with our loving king forever 
or we will face a righteous warrior judge one day. What you do with Christ's authority, what you do with His authority, will determine whether you will enjoy Him forever, or you will be judged by Him one day. That's exactly what we see in this passage. Our passage breaks down into three main sections. Look at your Bible. There's the situation that was read by Bob in the first eight verses. And then the illustration, the parable, and the application, the point, that's read in 9 through 18. We're just going to kind of go try to hit all of it today. Let's go for it. You ready? We'll start with the situation. Today we're going to see Jesus' authority is questioned, but he wisely responds with wisdom, mercy, and truth. Let's look at the situation. First, on one of the days while he was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and scribes with their elders confronted him. And they spoke, saying to him, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, or who is the one who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask, also ask you a question, and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? We'll stop there. Just to get our context here, Jesus has recently raised Lazarus from the dead, and his popularity is exploding. To an alarming size, the religious elites hated this idea that Jesus was going to be followed by many. They were desperate to rid themselves of Jesus, and Jesus had entered into the city just a couple days before with crowds of worshipers attributing to him messianic promises. Then Jesus comes into the temple and acts with authority, purging the temple of the corrupt practices going on in the court of the Gentiles. The place where they were supposed to be a light to the Gentiles, they were selling and making a profit, and this makes Jesus angry. And he acts with authority and cleanses the temple. The religious leaders were furious over his rising popularity and his cleansing of the temple for the second time in less than three and a half years. Jesus had acted without their approval, and they were angry. They were the ones in their mind who were in power. And Jesus had destroyed and quickly destroyed their system of making a profit in the temple. And they were very, very angry. They sought a reason to destroy him, as our passage talks about in the previous verses in 19. So as we see in 1 through 8, they confront Jesus as he proclaimed the good news of his arrival to the crowd in the temple. I want to emphasize a point of application for all of us here. We have a tendency to take a passage like this, even as believers, especially as believers, and apply this passage wrongly. We often put ourselves in the place of Jesus, and we think we have authority to confront people's hypocrisies. We all too often are ready to confront people, but rather we should be looking to first confront our own hearts. Listen, it is not our job to exert our authority over other people. It is our job to point people to the authority of Jesus Christ. Folks, we are not Jesus. Way too often we apply the gospel passages to ourselves and say we should be like Jesus in this area. I would agree 100% we should be like Jesus in the areas where he is living a holy, 
humble, gentle life. But when he is acting as the God-man, we need to be careful because we aren't the God-man. We must be careful that when we confront, the goal is humble service to the Lord and out of a genuine love for the person we are confronting. And we must let God be the authority, not ourselves. So important. Often our confrontation can be more like the religious elites than the humble servants of the Lord Jesus. If our message, and this is the key to knowing whether or not you're applying this passage wrong, if our message is about making us look good, not Jesus look good, we need to ask ourselves if we're if our motives of speaking is really self-authority and self-glory or Christ's glory. When you talk to somebody, when you're confronting somebody, when you're cleansing the temple, be careful, for all too often we think we are the cleanser when he is the cleanser. He should get the glory, not us. All too often we take the glory. We think, I got this figured out, you don't repent. So, when we apply this passage, be careful. (laughs) Let the authority be God's word. Let the authority in the king be Jesus. And let the glory go to him, not yourself. Notice, this was not the motive of the religious leaders of Jesus' day in this passage. In 21 through 8. Look at the next next four verses. They reasoned among themselves, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, What did you not believe him? Why did you not believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Nor will I tell you by what authority I do these things. We see that Jesus comes, or they come to Jesus with two questions. The first question being, Tell us by what authority you are doing these things. And then, Or who is the one who gave you this authority? The first question, again, elevates themselves over Jesus. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things implies that they're the authority. Why are you doing this? And yet it also tries to trap Jesus to claim his deity. See, they wanted ammunition to kill him, to destroy him. And if he came right out and said, I am the God-man, I am the authority... They would say, let's kill him, blasphemy, which is what his charge is later on in the week. That's what their charge is later on in the week. So they're trying to trap him and get him to say this. But they're also saying, in a sense, why did you cleanse the temple? Why did you do these things? Who gave you this authority? How do you think you have the authority to do these things? After all, we are the religious elites, is what would be going on in their mind. We are the rulers. The second question, again, implies the same thing. They were the authority, and none of them had given him any authority. You need to be quiet, Jesus. The chief priests and scribes were saying, I'm the one. We're the one that make the rules in this playground. Go somewhere else. You don't have authority. Nobody gave it to you. And they want to entrap him to say that he is sent from God. But again, Jesus shows his sovereign authority. How does he do it? He allows their wicked plot to happen only at the moment when he and God has planned it. 
he was going to die on Passover at a specific time in a specific place when he was ordained to die. All right, think about that for a second. He was going to die at the exact moment that God had determined for him to die, not when they determined. And they were trying to trap him, and so what does he do? He answers in a way that gives him a little bit more time, less than a week now. He avoids coming right out and saying he is the God-man who has all authority, even though he was, right? He could have answered that and said that. But we also see here that Jesus reveals his authority by totally silencing his critics and those that think they're in authority over him. I am staggered by this little question. Look at the question he says. I will also ask you a question and you tell me. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from men? One answer. All it has to be a one word answer. It's a question that he asks. And it completely stumps them. He silences them. It's amazing. In the Matthew's account, it says, in, it adds that Jesus also answered, or he added this little phrase, that if you answer my question, then I'll answer your previous question. In other words, you get this right, and then okay, I'll answer that question. The reality was is that he asked a question that just shut them up, silenced them. They could say nothing. He asked a question that totally stumps him. And this one word answer, it's either heaven or men. And he would have gone ahead and answered. But notice it says they were totally silent because they were fearful of man and they didn't want to admit that he was from heaven. John was from heaven. Or that his message had come from heaven. In their mind, they knew, but they feared the people if they admitted their unbelief in John the Baptist, and thus Jesus was the authority. See, look, think about this for a second. If they would have said that John the Baptist was from heaven, they should have believed, and if they should have believed, who should they have believed in? Jesus, <laughs> because John the Baptist was pointing to Jesus. John the Baptist said, this one that comes after me is greater than I. <laughs> So listen to his authority. So if they answered it correctly, they would have had to say, I know where your authority is found. It comes from heaven. They would have answered the first question that they had for him by answering the second question right. It's a wild thought. Jesus is a master at logic. He's a master at wisdom. It reminds me so much of a proverb that I was thinking on. Proverbs 26.4. Do not answer a fool according to his folly, or you will also be like him. Then it starts in verse, in verse 5. Answer a fool as, he follow, as his folly deserves, that he may he not be wise in his own eyes. The idea here is don't lower yourself to be a fool and answer like a fool talks. But answer a fool in a way that he sees what he is, which is a fool. You understand? And that's exactly what Jesus did with one little question, a one-word answer. He said, answer this question, and you see that you are foolish in even asking me this. It's staggering. I, I think we should study the wisdom of Jesus. We should just spend hours and hours just engrossing ourselves in the glory of God and his word. 
The word reveals wisdom beyond imagination. How many of you have ever been uh, in a witnessing circumstance or an apologetic situation where somebody's confronting you or, or has that thing and you just, you're like, just want one, one little phrase that could just make it all go away? You know, if I could just say, just say that one little thing and then it would all, everybody would be quiet and they'd leave me alone. They don't know what they're doing. Just, uh, but I don't want to make them feel like, I don't want them feel bad. I, I want them to see the glory of Christ, right? That one little phrase, that one little question maybe. Let me tell you how you figure those out. You ready? Study Christ. Study the Word. Spend time in the Word. Study the glory of our Savior. Watch His words. Meditate on His words. I I marvel that most of the time Jesus doesn't give a harsh boom answer to their questions. He often responds with another question. I want to do that, don't you? Because what it does is it allows you, when you ask a question for a question... You allow them to answer their own question with truth. This is exactly who Jesus is. And you're going to see, he literally has them, by the end of this thing, he has them pronounce their own condemnation. It's staggering. By the end of this little section here, he literally has them say, They should be judged. And he's talking about themselves. You'll see it in a little bit. It's amazing. I'm convinced we all need to spend hours every week just studying the wisdom of our Lord Jesus. The more I study the word, the more I am shocked by the glory of our Savior. He knows and does and sees and understands things that make me awe him. Folks, why is it that when we are faced with difficulties... We are prone to lean on our own understanding. If we find ourselves in an impossible circumstance, where should we go for wisdom? God. Go to the Lord Jesus. He is wisdom. He embodies what wisdom is all about. That's why James chapter 1 verse 5 says, But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Oh, why is it? Why is it that we try to lean on our own wisdom to figure out things? We make a mess of things when we lean on our own wisdom and understanding, don't we? Go to Christ, He's wise. He knows the answer to every one of your questions. Now, I admit, he might not always give you your answer right away. It might take time. But that's where he wants you, ladies and gentlemen. Have you ever wondered why, when you're reading along, there's like these questions that come to your mind and you go, oh, why is that there? That doesn't make sense. Why is that there? And you ask these questions you say, okay, I want the answer now. (laughs) What God often wants us to do is think on it. Meditate on it. Wait. Why? Because that creates dependence. Do you understand? Dependence is what he wants. 
He wants us to wait and depend upon him, to search for him, to seek him with all that he is. And so what he does in passages like this is says, look, these fools out here didn't know what they were doing, but I am a wise one. Come to me. This is a glorious gospel message, even in the way he deals with the false ones. Now, this does not mean he is always going to give you the answer you want. Did you hear me? Wisdom doesn't always fit in our box, ladies and gentlemen. He is the answer, and he has the answer, so seek him and entrust him with that answer. And by the way, that's not some mystical voice from God that talks to you in your head. It's the word of God is where we get the wisdom of God. If Jesus was here, yes, we could talk directly to him, but he's not. He's given us this to give us our wisdom. So go there. What was the really, what's really strange to me, though, in this whole thing, is Jesus then goes on and tells them by what authority he did these things. If you look at the passage in verse 8, it appears to be that he says, then I won't tell you what authority I speak with or by what authority I do this. But then he turns around and tells them the answer anyway. Why does he tell him the answer anyway after he told him he wasn't going to? Well, I again think that the reason why he does this is he does it in a veiled way so that they will not be without excuse. They are going to pay for exactly what they knew. He gave them the answer in the parable, as you will see. And at the same time, he doesn't come out and do it in a way that they could immediately arrest him and mess up the way that God had planned. For him to die at the Passover. So as we look we'll see in the illustration. The parable that he gives. He gives them the answer. That he is deity. But yet he does it in a way that veils it. So that they can't push ahead with their own authority. The reason Jesus gives the parable is clear to both. Call them to reevaluate their lack of submission to him. And also warn them of their impending demise. Now listen to me so closely, ladies and gentlemen. You see that God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked in this little thing. Even though God is an all-sovereign God and a just God, by giving this parable, He is giving them mercy. He's telling them, you're about to be judged. You're about to be judged. You're about to be judged. That's merciful. He didn't have to. They were questioning his authority. Couldn't he have just come in and said, hey, whap? Right? Or he could have been completely silent. When they got silent, he could have looked to the other people and not talked to them anymore. But instead, he continues to warn them. And he does it in very gentle ways. Now, granted, what's coming up, he's he's going to lay them out very soon. Whoa, whoa, they're coming. But again, we see his mercy here. He's being confronted by the evil religious rulers of his day. And Jesus has silenced them for their foolishness. And now he begins to reveal that he must be embraced. And there will be huge consequences if they don't embrace him. Again, that Jesus even gives this illustrating parable 
is an amazing act of mercy. He is a merciful Savior, even to the wicked. Let's look at 9 through 16, the illustration. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey for a long time. At the harvest time, the owner sent a slave to the vine growers so that they would give him some of the produce of the vineyard. But the vine growers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send another slave, and they beat him also and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he proceeded to send a third, and this one also they wounded and cast out. The owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the vine growers saw him, they reasoned with one another, saying, This is the heir, let us kill him, so that their inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy these vine growers and will give the vineyard to others. When they heard it, they said, May it never be. When we interpret this parable of Jesus, we need to make sure we keep our sense and don't read too much into it. Each of the characters or, or, or parts of the parable have a main point that they're getting across. Ultimately, the main point of the parable is Jesus is confronting these religious leaders and telling them that he will be rejected, but he will be avenged for the, his death. They will pay for rejecting him. The following are the characters. Let's kind of lay these out. In your bulletin, you have your notes. You can follow these out. You might want to write some of these down so that next time if you're reading through this parable, you can just kind of plug it in and it'll make sense. Again, each one of the characters have a main person that's tied to it or represented to it or, or a character. The owner of the vineyard is, represents God. The owner of the vineyard represents God. And again, that doesn't mean that uh, God is only a man. Just because a parable is done that way, it's just a representative. It's a story used to illustrate a point. You understand? Later on in, the, in, in, in this passage, Jesus is going to be referring to himself as a stone. That doesn't literally mean that Jesus is a rock. You understand? It's an image. It's a metaphor. It's a picture that he's trying to give to the people so they understand. All right? So in this parable, the owner of the vineyard is, represents God. The vine growers represent the religious leaders of Israel over the history of Israel since Abraham. They're like the leaders, the ones that tend the vineyard. The vineyard itself represents the people of God. The slaves represent various prophets sent over the years to confront the people. Specifically, confronting the leaders that lacked righteous fruit production. In other words, the vine growers were supposed to, or the leaders were supposed to point the people to God so that they would produce fruit, and that would be given to the prophets. The prophets would say, oh, they're getting it. Well, he would send the slave, or the prophet, God would send these prophets to, to see the righteousness of repentance. 
And then there's the Son. The Son represents Jesus, himself the Son of God. And then there's the others. The others represent the followers, specifically, probably, the apostles or the leaders that Jesus had appointed, maybe the 70 that he sent out. Why? Because they become the leaders that replace the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the uh, scribes and the religious rulers. So as the story unfolds, Jesus gives us a synopsis of all of history from Abraham until his point. That's what's in that little parable. It's a, it's a synopsis of the history from Abraham all the way to Jesus. So let's see how it unfolds. God, the vineyard, the owner, God established a peace people to produce fruit in the vineyard for himself. He had rulers set up so that they would produce fruit. Israel. God sent set leaders, these vine growers, to rule over them. This is what the picture is showing. And care for his people, the vineyard. And he went on a long journey. This story implies the long history of God working through these people. And at specific times, God desired fruit from his people, so he sent prophets, the slaves, to get fruit. But time and again, the slaves were beaten and rejected by the religious leaders over the thousands of years. Hebrews talks about this, right? The author of Hebrews talks about being sawn in two and how the prophets were killed and hurt by Israel over the years. And then finally, the father sends his son. This is representing Jesus. And the religious rulers literally kill the son. Jesus was once again pointing to his coming death because these religious, this, these wicked rulers. So, the, there's a couple of shocking things about the story. Let me ask you a question. When you're reading through and you're looking through this passage, get back here. When we get to verse 13, the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. I don't know about you guys. But I, when I read that, it's kind of shocking to me. I want you to think about this for a second. If you had a vineyard, and it was way off, a, a company, okay? And you sent somebody from your board over there to check out the company, and they beat him up, okay? And you sent another person, and they beat him up. And you sent another one, and they beat him up. <laughs> Would you go, hmm, I got it. I will send my loved son. I will send my loved son over there so maybe they'll respect my son. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't do that. You know why? Because I'm not as loving as God is. This is a scream of love from God. He's saying, yes, this is my beloved son, but I love you. I love you so much. I will send him to you. This is, a, this is beyond our comprehension of love. We can't even wrap our minds around it. How many of you would sacrifice your own child for a friend? We have a hard time even saying that. How about your enemy? This is the love of God. 
What does Jesus say here in effect? How does he confront? How does he confront? Now listen. How does he confront these that are questioning his authority? He tells them, I love you. In effect, he's saying, God loves you. What? I wouldn't tell him that. My natural inclination would be what? Somebody's questioned my authority. You better submit to me. If not, there's going to be a consequence. That would be the natural response, wouldn't it? Instead, he says, to those that are questioning his authority, I love you. I love you. (laughs) Oh, folks, do you see this? This is wild. He's not only wise, but he's also a gracious and kind and loving God. Now, after the rejection, there does come judgment. But he offers hope first. Again, he offers hope first. It's very interesting, Matthew's passage. Matthew's account of this. Matthew 21, 41. It says, They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Now, do you realize who's saying this? (laughs) Look what he did. If you look at Matthew's account, it's, it's, it's wild. It's amazing. What he did was he had the vine grow or the um, religious elites literally pronounce their own condemnation. He had them say, the owner of the vineyard is going to judge those and should judge those that reject the son. They're saying, the people said this. We should be judged for rejecting you. That's what they're saying. Master logic. It's amazing. Literally, he's having them preach to themselves. Anybody ever been able to do that? All all of us that do any kind of counseling at all, biblical counseling, that's our goal. Biblical counseling is that. Our goal is not to be the one that counsels you all the time. Our goal is to teach you to counsel yourself (laughs) to the cross and to the glory of the gospel. That's what Jesus does. He basically has them speak their own condemnation. Hopefully they will go, Wait, what am I doing? We're killing the sun. It's amazing. And then they say, when they finally figure it all out, then they say, as Luke's account says, may it never be. In other words, they say it, and then he repeats it, it appears, and they go, oh, oh. What you're saying then, Jesus, in this story is we are the vine growers. We are the ones that are supposed to be pointing the people to you and to God, and we're not. And you're going to take our authority and our role away from us and give it to somebody else. And they finally get it. And they go, may it never be. 
with emphatic words, may this never happen. No way. marvel at this passage. What he says in so few words would take me years to say. (laughs) He's able to cut right to the heart and say exactly what has to be said and have them say and understand their position perfectly. The goal of every preacher is clarity and accuracy, if they're good, if they love God, want to honor Him. Clarity and accuracy. Jesus is the perfect preacher. He's the perfect communicator. He speaks truth with grace, compassion, passion, gentleness, accuracy, clarity, with few words. And they get it. He knows all there is. Do you see that he's showing his sovereignty? He's showing his authority in the story too? Look what he did in the authority. In the story, he says he's the son in effect, right? What does he say? I'm the one that comes with the authority given from God because God sent me. He answers their questions. And... What's even more staggering is he shows that he's in sovereign control even of their evil motives against him. Because, he says, they kill him. Which implies what? He knows exactly what's going to happen to him on Friday before it happens. He tells them, you're going to kill me. (laughs) You are going to kill me. That's a wild thought. Jesus knows intimately the past. He knows intimately the present, and he knows intimately the future. He knows everything, and he pronounces it perfectly. He knew they were going to eventually kill him, and he exposed this also. He also knows their rejection was only going to seal their condemnation and reveal a whole new relationship founded upon him. Yet at the same time, he was uh, claiming to be the son, the owner, and thus to have all authority. Over and over and over through Luke's account, haven't we seen it? Jesus is saying, I am God, but he says it without being proud. He says it humbly. That's a wild thought. He says it clearly. I think ultimately, he doesn't say it, and he just doesn't come out and say, I am God because he didn't want to be misunderstood as being all about himself. He is still all about what the Father wills and he wants to submit to the Father's will. He's being humble. I think ultimately Jesus is trying to call them to reevaluate who he is. All the people that are watching, by the way, think about the apostles that are watching this. They are learning some amazing lessons, aren't they? They're watching... How they're learning how they should deal with those that are going to give them a hard time in the next couple of years. How do I deal with all these people? Watch him. That's how. Be like him. In some ways, the obscurity of Jesus covering himself and not coming straight out shows his great compassion and humility 
and gentleness. We must come to know this God. We must come to know our Savior more and more. A humble, broken, and gentle man that loves the people that he came to save. These religious elites were the opposite of humble and contrite, right? They hated God, and they hated his Messiah, and Jesus exposes that. Again, as I've mentioned often before, if you knew you were going to die in a specific city at a specific time to a specific people, would you stay in the city and be confronted by those very people who were going to kill you? No, we'd run, wouldn't we? Oh, the glory of our Savior and His love, right? 10,000 reasons to worship Him. 10,000 reasons. He did not retreat because He loved the Father and because He loved His own. Let's look at the application, though. Verses 17 through 18, we see, But Jesus looked at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. This is a great passage. Again, the verse 17 appears to be quoting from a passage in the Old Testament. What passage is this quoted from? I was wondering if anybody would just say it. Yes, Psalm 118, Psalm 118, the same one that I have said every week for the last four weeks, remember? (laughs) Do you think he wanted them to know what Psalm 118 was about? Yes. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Who is the stone? Jesus is the stone. He's this cornerstone. The cornerstone was the place in a building when you lay that stone, everything was based on that stone. If it was off just a little bit, then the building would tumble. It had to be perfectly level. It was Everything was based off that one stone. And Jesus is that stone. And what does it say? That the builders rejected, which would imply what? That the ones that were leading, the Israelites, the ones that he had come to save, They were the ones that rejected him. But what did it become? Even though he was rejected, it became the what? The chief cornerstone. Something new was going to happen. Even though he was going to be rejected, he was going to be killed, he was also going to rise from the dead and establish a new temple. So he moves from the vine growers to a stone, and the stone is himself. He asked them, in effect, don't you know your Bibles? He says, in Matthew's account, it literally, don't you understand what the Scriptures say? That it is written? The stone which the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone? Ladies and gentlemen, this is staggering for these people. This is them having all that they have, all this knowledge, this Bible, quote-unquote knowledge, and you don't know what it says? The Bible says that I'm going to be rejected. There will be a suffering servant. There will be one. You don't know your Bible? That's what he's saying. It says it. This is what God has ordained to happen. It's almost like he's stealing every bit of glory that they might take. They think, oh, well, we're going to kill this guy and we're something. 
And it's like saying, no, you're going to kill us, but it's still God's plan, and God's going to be glorified in it anyway. God's using you. <laughs> That's a wild thought, isn't it? He's literally using you. Your rejection, he's using it to save a people. Stone will be rejected by the builders, and yet his rejection will become a foundation stone for the entire new covenant relationship. So in verse 17, we see Jesus as the stone, which is a messianic representative of the Old Testament. It has his rejection, his ordained part of the plan of God. It has the rejection, or the resurrection implied. And then this last verse, verse 18. Everyone who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will be scattered or scatter like him like dust. This is a tricky one because when you look at the but there, I thought of, you know, in verse 18, the beginning, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. I kept thinking this has got to be contrast. This has got to be contrast, but it's not contrast. It's developing the same thing. It's actually this concept of a stone. If you have a stone and you drop a pot on it, what happens? It breaks, right? Or if the stone is dropped on a pot, what happens? It breaks. The emphasis is is that he's the crushing influence, the stone. In other words, put real simple, if you reject me, you will be judged. That's what he's saying. If you reject the Savior... You will be judged. If you reject the Messiah, you will be crushed. You will be scattered. So what is, this, what is his reply to their questioning his authority? Here's his reply in a nutshell. You ready? This is his reply. God has sent me. I am here. I will die. I will rise again. I will establish a new covenant relationship. And all those who reject me will be judged. He gives them the gospel. The people that question his authority, he says, I am the good news. Believe in me. Otherwise you will be judged. There is no other name given among men by which we may be saved. <laughs> Jesus Christ is our hope today, tomorrow, and forever. So when we look through this and we think through this, you must ask yourself this question. Which one are you? Are you the one that comes questioning his authority? Or are you the one that comes worshiping and praising him for his authority? For the believer... It should be a call to reevaluate your own heart and say, these sins, when we sin, what are we doing? Think about this for a second. When you sin, what are you doing? We are saying, you will not be king over me. When we sin, we say, you will not be Lord over me. What is the answer? What is the answer to your lack of submission? What is it? Jesus Christ. The answer is 
the one who is the king himself. It is not reform your heart by yourself, clean yourself up. Your answer is Christ Jesus the Lord. He is your hope. He is the foundation. Turn to him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Christ. Father, when we stop and think about our own lives, we see the numerous times where we still continue to fight against our old man that wants to be king. Oh God, forgive us for this. Help us to continue to die to self by the Spirit's work in our life to put to death sin and to trust you and to depend on you and to enjoy you and to be satisfied with you. You are an all-satisfying God. You are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our obedience. Where there is unholiness or uncleanliness in us, Lord, or, or sin, Lord, help us to purge it from the temples of our heart. Change us, God. Make us holy followers. We want to be who we are in Christ. We know that we are declared right by Christ alone. That it's His work, His righteousness is our only hope. Yet, Lord, we want to be and live who we are in Christ. We want to look like our King. Not to take His authority, but to show off His humility and His grace and His righteousness. Change us, Father. You have given us 10,000 reasons to worship you. So we stand now and we want to worship you with that song again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.